start today with this question. What is your self-image? How do you view yourself and what would you like your self-image to be? What do you think would be healthy and life-giving? We're on this journey together, the fellowship of the withered hand, as we walk through Lent and we think about God and Jesus and his love and his death on the cross and prepare for Easter. And we know that a transformed life, a renovated heart, begins by the renewing of our mind. When our thoughts turn in a direction that is true and noble and good and that our minds consist largely of ideas about how things are general assumptions very complicated and then images which are much more uh, visual sensual dallas willard writes this in renovation of the heart on page 100 images increase the danger of inadequate ideas they have the power to obsess and to hypnotize as well as to escape critical scrutiny we saw yesterday, if you were with me for that one, how uh, masks have taken on uh, an emotional charge that's enormous, and they enable us to live in idolatry without ever naming it. The image one has of oneself, for example, can override everything else and cause one to act in ways contrary to all reality and good sense. Those who have been rejected or abused as children or have lived with addicted or cold parents, and I think about many of you that I know, have distorted images of themselves and of reality. These are constantly present to their minds and force them into the disastrous lifescape of thought where they must then live. In group shared images lead to fads, groupthink, mob hysteria that once again has no regard to fact or reasonableness. I'll tell you how sensitive we are to self-image. There was a famous study 10 years or so ago at University of North Carolina where subjects were all given uh, very expensive sunglasses. Designer sunglasses cost hundreds of dollars each, but half of them were told that they were knockoffs, that they were fakes. Then everybody was given a test to solve problems. They got paid a certain amount for correct answers. They got to score their own tests. People who wore or thought they were wearing knockoff sunglasses were more than twice as likely to lie as people who were wearing, uh, who, who believed that they were wearing the genuinely expensive sunglasses. Now, the moral of this is not, I got to go out and buy some really, really expensive sunglasses so I feel good about myself. Precisely not. Dallas goes on. Individuals who suffer from a poor image of themselves are caught up in self-rejection and have no defenses against group pressures. They do not see themselves as object of God's love, and they have no place to make a stand. Henry Nouwen noted, success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation, but their seductive quality often comes from the way they are part of a much larger temptation of self-rejection. We have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, and I know those voices. Then, success and popularity and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions to our desolate condition. 
Self-rejection, now and continued, is the greatest enemy of spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Self-rejection, Dallas writes, is ultimately our soul's reproach to God, deriving from false images of himself and his world. So how do we respond to this? And one might think, and often in our therapeutic culture, this is advocated that I should just think about myself more positively and learn to dwell on my gifts or my talents or my attractiveness. But actually, this doesn't end up bringing about true healing because I could still be quite apt to compare myself to other people or to be threatened by other people who are more talented or more attractive or to be concerned as I age and I begin to lose these things. Dallas writes, Failure to know what God is really like and what His law requires destroys the soul, ruins society, leaves people in eternal ruin. My people are destroyed by lack of knowledge, the prophet Hosea said. And so Jesus comes to correct our misinformation about life and about God. He presents, and I love this little phrase from Dallas, he comes to present father facts. Look at the birds in the air. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Look at the lilies of the field. Your heavenly Father dresses them. Every moment in this world is filled with God's love and God's care. And we see this in a thousand ways, but particularly we see it in Jesus, and particularly we see it in the death of Jesus. Now, this is an amazing statement. Jesus' death was understood by his early disciples to be an ultimate revelation of the Father heart of God. God proves his love for us, Paul wrote, in that while we were still rebelling against him, Christ died for us. Now listen, that is, his death was a revelation of the nature of basic reality. His death was a revelation of the basic nature of reality, which is built on the goodness and power of self-sacrificing love. And it is when we think about God that we discover our own worth. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Our worth ultimately is incalculable, but it's not based on things that we can do or produce or achieve. We have what uh, philosopher Nicholas Walterstorff calls bestowed worth. And the idea is being attached to something, someone very great. There's a house in Virginia, Mount Vernon, and it is a place of great worth, not because of its architecture or construction, but because it was owned and lived in by George Washington. It has bestowed worth. The shirt that I am wearing today doesn't fit me real great. There's one person watching right now who knows the one to whom this shirt used to belong. And that is why it is of great worth to me, not because of its fit or its fabric, but because of its original possessor. And this is true of human beings. A friend of mine was many, many years ago tucking his little daughter into bed at night, and he came back an hour later, and she was still awake. And he said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm thinking. She said, what are you thinking? He said, what are you thinking about? She said, I'm thinking about how I'm a princess, and one day I'm going to get married, and Daddy, you're going to be my prince. And he said, well, uh, I can't do that because I'm actually mommy's prince and, you know, lots of rules about that. She said, well, then who's my prince going to be? She said, well, we don't know yet. Might be any number of guys. In fact, maybe when you grow up, a good idea would be to let daddy decide who the prince is going to be. Now, for better or for worse, we don't live in that kind of culture, but 
There's a great writer, George MacDonald, who often wrote about princes and princesses. And somebody asked him one time, why do you write about that so much? And he said, well, a princess, a prince, is just the child of the king. And every human being is the child of a king. And therefore, we are all princes and we are all princesses. We have bestowed worth. And by the way, this impacts deeply the way that we look at other people, the image we should have in them. This is why the church was so revolutionary. This is why Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, now in Christ there is neither slave nor free, uh, Greek nor Jew, barbarian or Scythian. The reason he mentions Scythian is in the ancient world, they were the bottom of the barrel. Nobody liked them. When the barbarians saw Scythians coming, they said, here's the real barbarians. Paul says, now in Jesus, uh, every human being has infinite bestowed worth. And so our invitation actually is to turn our mind toward God. We must apply our thinking to and with the Word of God, Dallas writes. We must thoughtfully take that Word in, dwell upon it. Do you do this? Ponder its meaning, explore its implications, especially as it relates to our lives. What are we to do in the light of the facts of the gospel and the revelation of God and of human destiny contained in the Bible? And then particularly this on page 106, to bring the mind to dwell intelligently upon God as he is presented in his word, will have the effect of causing us to love God passionately, and this love will bring us to think of God steadily. Thus, he will always be before our minds. I have a long, long, long way to go to this, but I know there is no other road. There is no other way. In this, Dallas writes, we enter into a life of worship. To think of God as he is, one cannot but lapse into worship. And worship is the single most powerful force in completing and sustaining restoration in the, uh, in the whole person. It puts into abeyance every evil tendency in every dimension of the self. It naturally arises from thinking rightly of God on the basis of revealed truth confirmed in experience. We say flatly, I love this, we say flatly, worship is at once the overall character of the renovated thought life and the only safe place for a human being to stand. An old hymn puts it like this, in our astonished reverence, we confess thine uncreated loveliness. So today, live in astonished reverence. Notice the good that is all around me, that is all around you. Every leaf in nature, the sun when it comes up and when it goes down. Every breath that fills my lungs, it's all a gift. Any bite of food. Last night, Nancy and I went to an art gallery, and the ability of human beings to create beauty is unbelievable. And we went with good friends and then had dinner with them. And I, what amazing gifts. Let every good gift be noted in your mind, and then connect the dots back to God. Think about God today. Live in astonished reverence. Let thoughts lead to worship. Joy, gratitude, goodness, contentment, and delight. That's a healthy mind. That's a life-giving image. I'll see you next time.